This morning we're coming to our penultimate study in this series entitled Fresh Prayers for a New Year and we're turning to the New Testament book of Colossians this morning. Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 14 and you'll find it on page 1831 of your pew Bible. And if you're watching from home this morning and watching for the first time, this is the point in our service on Sunday morning when we get out our Bibles and we study them and meditate and reflect on them together. So please feel free to do that at home. And if you want to have a notebook with you and something to write with, I think you would find that helpful as well. And so we're coming to Colossians chapter 1 and looking at one of the great prayers of the Apostle Paul. Over this series together, we've been looking at prayers of Scripture and asking, what can they teach us about our own prayer life and what makes a healthy structure for prayer and what is good content for prayer? And so we looked at one of the other prayers of the Apostle Paul back in early January. And today we're coming to a very similar prayer, in fact. First one was Ephesians and this one is Colossians. The Apostle Paul begins his letter to the church at Colossae by bringing them greetings on behalf of himself and Timothy. And then he gives thanks for the church at Colossae because he's heard great things about them. We're going to see that uh, in a moment or two. And we're breaking into this prayer at verse 9, chapter 1. And Paul writes, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. The next seven days will find for us as a congregation a little moment of unprecedented excitement because as a staff and a congregation we are putting together a time capsule that will be a waterproof container that we will bury in the foundations of our new building. Now, some of you are aware that part of the new building is up and some, of course, continues to be under construction and it will be some point in the summer before that's entirely complete. But the idea behind a time capsule, as most of you, I assume, is aware, know that folks in a particular time and age will put together things that are important to them, things that a future generation will find interesting. And so as we put together a time capsule that in 60 or 70 years when a new generation will say it's time to refurbish our campus to meet our present needs, they will dig up a time capsule that we will send to them. And the idea is to give them a snapshot of life in 
21 and 22. And in there we will put a church magazine. We will put our strategic plans for our new building. We will put in a flash drive, and on that flash drive will be video recordings of our children and our youth and our moment for ministries and various ministries we're actively involved in each week, along with Sunday services, and there will be a whole pile of stuff in there. And we've also agreed as a staff that two things we want to put in there that will remind folks in 60 or 70 years of life over the last 18 months, we're going to put in a COVID face mask and a copy of a vaccination card, because we think historically they'll get a sense of that as well. And one of the great delights for me is that I will get the opportunity to write a letter to a congregation in 60 or 70 years. And so this week I would appreciate your prayers as I begin to structure that and think what should be included, what should not be included, and so on. This morning, in some small way, we are reading Paul's time capsule to the church at Colossae. Because as you begin to read the epistle to the Colossians and you begin to look at all that Paul lays out for them, it gives us a sense of their priorities as a congregation. It reminds us of all that they were going through as a congregation, the blessings, the joys, the encouragement, the answer prayer, as well as the challenges and the priorities of their ongoing life. And so this morning, in some small sense, we see a parallel there. Although it's not 60 or 70 years, but we're going back almost 2,000 years. And to look at the prayer of the Apostle Paul, why did he pray in such a manner? What biblical principles can we learn and apply to our own lives in the 21st century? So that's approximately where we're going. And so this morning, as we come to this passage of Scripture, we know several things about the church in Colossae. We know, of course, where they were located. And just to remind you about the geography of the ancient Near East, if you're reading the word Mediterranean Sea, highlighted there in blue, come to the end of the word Mediterranean, that final letter N, and then go directly north Keep going through the Mediterranean Sea till you come to what's called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and you can see Lycia right there, and Perga, and keep going north, and you see the city of Colossae. And that's where Colossae is to be found. Today, unfortunately, it's a ruin. It was dominated by its neighbors, Hierapolis and Lycia. Laodicea, excuse me, both of these cities grew and developed and Colossae became smaller and smaller. And today you can go there and see the ruins of the ancient city. And Colossae is known, or the epistle to the Colossians is known for several outstanding attributes. And it's known, first of all, as a friendly epistle. The Apostle Paul writes in warm tones, and it's written in a style which is vivid, direct, realistic, powerful indeed, 
deeply stimulating and is never sterile, academic or merely sentimental. In fact, it is the opposite of that. It is one of the most practical epistles to be found anywhere. And the other interesting point towards the end of the epistle is this, that the Apostle Paul, in writing to them, writes this. He says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. Now, what does that tell us, and why is that important? It tells us this. That Paul not only wrote the epistles that we have in the New Testament canon, but he wrote other epistles that didn't make their way into the New Testament canon. One of them being the letter to the church at Laodicea, which is very intriguing. But it also tells us this, that Paul's expectation was that when he wrote to a church, he was writing directly to that congregation, of course, but he also wanted them to share that letter with others. And so when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, folks in the church at Rome wrote out, which is his longest epistle by far, and they then sent it to other congregations as well. Same in Colossae, same in Laodicea. And that's how the gospel began to spread, as the Apostle Paul encouraged and laid out firmly beliefs of this newfound Christianity, which was exploding across the Mediterranean world. And so all of that is by way of introduction to this epistle. And what we discover here is this that Paul writes in a spectacular fashion this friendly letter. And please go back, if you have your Bible still open, go back to verse 3, which sets the context for us. In chapter 1, verse 3, he writes in glowing terms to this church to encourage them and bless them. And he writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. And then he adds, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now notice what he says to the folks at Colossae, we always Thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And Paul is saying this, we have heard great things about you. We are so pleased about you. We're delighted every time we hear things about you. You're growing and developing as a congregation. And you're growing deeper in your faith. You're maturing. And we are thrilled and delighted for you. Now, can you imagine what it was like that first Sunday when the church at Colossae received a letter from the Apostle Paul. And one of the elders stood up and said, I've received an epistle from Paul, let me read it to you. And can you imagine how encouraged and strengthened they would be that here is the Apostle Paul, many miles away, arrested for his faith, languishing in a Roman prison cell, and he is encouraging the church at Colossae. And he's saying, well done. How encouraging would that be? Just remarkable. And so he begins with that note of thanksgiving. And then we come to his actual prayer. 
And so, by way of introduction, we've got verses 3 through 8, and then we find the content of his prayer right there in verse 9. And what you have here is very similar to his letter to the Ephesians, and we mentioned that some time ago, uh, or excuse me, earlier in the service. And he writes a single sentence from verse 9 all the way through to verse 15. In fact, even slightly further. 218 words. It's almost as if Paul is pouring his prayer onto the page. It is a veritable cascade of words. He cannot get it down quickly enough. And he is saying, this is what I am praying for you. He neither pauses for punctuation. He neither pauses to take a breath. He is so excited to tell him, this is what I am praying for you. And notice what he says. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you, what? With the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now let me pause for a second. Because you may be saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying. And I've been listening over the last uh, four Sundays together. I've enjoyed this series on prayer. But Richard, before you get any deeper, before you begin to take us into all that Paul is saying, I have a question. And Richard, I know you, I know I'm interrupting you, and I know I asked this several weeks ago, but Richard, for the life of me, I cannot remember what the answer to my question was. I know you answered it, but I just can't remember. So please forgive me, but let me ask my question again. And it's this. Richard, you have talked about prayer for the last four Sundays. You have laid it out for us in significant detail. I'm most grateful. But Richard, my question is still this, and it's one I struggle with pretty regularly. What do I do on the days when I don't feel like praying? Now, I know you're about to take us into Paul, and I know you're about to encourage us and strengthen our faith. I get that. But my question is this, what do I do when I don't feel like praying? It's a great question. So let me ask you, How can the Apostle Paul write, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We have not stopped praying for you. So how can the Apostle Paul write, we have not stopped praying for you, every time you come to mind, and on a regular basis we're praying for you, and then over here, here we are, wrestling with the question, what on earth do we do on the days, oh, we just don't feel like praying? Well, let me ask you to use your imagination. Let me ask you to put yourself in an office environment. And there's only two of you in this particular office. It's not a very big office, enough for two desks and computers and filing cabinets, if we even still use them today. And so there's office furniture there. And you have a colleague at work. And you've been working together now for just about eight or ten weeks. And when your colleague first moved into the office, the first day went reasonably well. You chit-chatted away. But since then, your colleague hasn't really communicated much with you. 
Oh, from time to time, they'll write out a sticky note and leave it on stuck to your telephone or on your desk or sometimes put it on your chair. They'll send you email or they'll text you. But they don't really communicate. Never talk. And it feels just a little odd and there's a bit of tension there in the room. And eventually you think, well, there's something going on here and I can't quite put my finger on it. And you say to your colleague, how is your schedule just after lunch? Can we sit down, even if it's just for 10 or 20 minutes, and talk? And your colleague says, well, I suppose. And sure enough, that's what happens. And you explain to your colleague that not much communication is taking place. But you don't really talk about projects and deadlines and budgets and forward planning, whether it be uh, long-term planning, short-term planning. You just don't seem to communicate. And you say, when you talk, they never really respond. And then your colleague says, well, let me be entirely honest. I didn't mind talking that first day. But when I was talking, my mind was drifting to other things, and I couldn't really concentrate. And when you said something, I wasn't really paying attention, and I thought, what's the point in this? Honestly, it was pretty boring, I just don't feel like talking, and it didn't really go anywhere. Now take that analogy and add it to prayer. And how would you feel if God says to you, you know, when I talk with you, my mind kind of drifts and I'm solving problems in the third world or there's an earthquake happened in Turkey or there's something else going on. And honestly, I'm just too busy and my mind drifts and frankly, speaking with you is pretty boring and I really honestly don't get much out of it. So there's not much point really, Is, is there? Are you beginning to get the picture? When Paul says, we have not stopped praying for you, what he's encouraging folks in the first century to do, and here in the 21st century, is this. That when you don't feel like praying, that's often the time you need to pray the most. And prayer takes practice. It takes perseverance. It's like learning to play an instrument or learn a new language or any new discipline. It takes time. It takes effort. And in the middle of prayers, when you're stumbling or stammering or repeating yourself and you think, this is not going well, your prayer becomes, Father, teach me how to pray. Help me as I pray. Reorientate my deepest affections in order that I might Pray with transparency and vulnerability. And Father, in those days when I'm hurting over a situation or a challenge in my life or circumstances that are not going well, help me to bring them to you and be honest about them. Because when you are there, then real prayer takes place. Maturity begins. Growth is happening because you have that honest, transparent, genuine dialogue with God himself. And so when you're tempted to think, 
How do I pray on the days I can't be bothered? Let me encourage you, please, make an effort. Don't give up. Don't let your mind wander. Don't be distracted and prayerfully say, Father, please help me when I'm praying. Help me to focus. Help me to concentrate. Help me to lay out before you the real issues in my life. And help me to be honest and transparent. Not simply to go through prayer as if it's some kind of rote or liturgy, but to be honest and open in your presence. When the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, since the day we first heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. That's what he's saying. Prayer takes perseverance. Growth and maturity doesn't come easily. It is hard. That's exactly what the Apostle is saying here. So when you're tempted to think, Richard, I don't get anything out of prayer, my mind is distracted, that's the very moment to double down. That's the moment for honesty and transparency. And that's what's happening here. And Paul is praying on good days and bad days, up days, down days, days when he's busy, days when he's less busy, days when he'd rather not. He is saying, Father, help me please. To pray and pray well. Because God will never ever say to us, here they come again with the same old prayer request. How many times do I have to answer this? How many times do I have to tell them? How many times do they need to learn this lesson again? In fact, the opposite's the case. He'll surround you with his love, lift you up, put you onto his lap, and he'll say, Talk to me once more. And with great patience and overwhelming love, when he refreshes and renews you, he will take all the time in the world to spend with you. That's the point Paul is making. Thomas Watson, Puritan writer of a couple of hundred years ago, in fact, 17th century, someone said to him, Mr. Watson, How long should I pray for each day? Should it be five minutes or ten minutes, fifteen minutes? How long should I pray? And Watson said this, Praying is like standing in front of an open fire on a very cold day. Remain there until you are thoroughly warmed and ready for work. He's absolutely right. Perseverance in prayer makes quite the significance. Don't give up. Don't let your mind drift. Don't tell yourself you're getting nothing out of it. But be honest and transparent and persevere in your prayer. Because with great prayer brings perseverance. Not only great prayer brings perseverance, it also brings perspective. How many times have you prayed and at the end of your prayer time things have fallen into place that you couldn't see doing so before you prayed? It brings perspective on issues. It slows us down. It warms the heart. It refreshes the soul. That honest, transparent, 
at times wounded, raw prayer makes quite a difference. And then notice, not only does Paul encourage them to continue praying, notice what he actually prays for. And he says, we have not stopped praying for you, and this is quite the prayer, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now let me pause there. Spiritual wisdom and understanding... Has there ever been a time when you have said, I don't need spiritual wisdom and understanding, thank you. I have enough insight and knowledge to see me through the rest of the year. No, there's never been a time, has there? Spiritual wisdom, understanding, grasping what God's will is in the midst of a situation is crucial for us, is it not? Back in January, I said that many of us in the course of this year will attend family weddings. Some of us will have wee ones born into our family for the first time. Some of us will have child number three and four. Others of us will have great-grandchildren this year. Others of us are looking forward to graduation, some planning retirement, others thinking of a new job or a new home. And your prayer in the midst of all of that is, Father, Thy will be done. The question is, how do you know God's will? Well, you know it through the knowledge of His will. And look at it again, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And you may be saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying, but how on earth do you get knowledge of His will through spiritual wisdom and understanding? How do we get there? Help us with that. Give me a sense of what's going on here. How do I determine God's will? Richard, is it a case that I simply find a comfortable chair and... Sit down, become quiet and prayerful. And do I just sit there until I have an intuition or a feeling that, yeah, I think God's answered my prayer and I don't get up till I do? Is that how you discover the will of God? I would have to tell you, when I've taken that approach, it usually has not worked out terribly well because my own feelings and intuitions get in the way. So how do we understand? Look at the language again. Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Throughout the history of the church and through our own experience, I think most of us would say this, Richard, I get to know him better when I open up his word. When I learn more of his character and his nature when I learn how he intervenes with his children, when I learn what is expected of me as I live out the Christian faith day by day, as he takes my life and shapes it and fashions it, as he builds my character and my personality, as he instills within me moral and spiritual values, as he begins to lead and direct me, it happens when I open up his word. And when I study it, and meditate on it, and then actually apply it when I'm obedient to his call, then I discover his will. Not sitting quietly, but as I seek to live out my faith, as I seek to mature and grow in my faith, then I discover his will. 
as gently I step forward, trusting him for all that life has for me. And I do it in this way. When I read of his overwhelming love and his grace, when I read that he will never abandon me or never walk away from me, and in the most difficult, hard times, when I don't feel like praying, when I'm wounded over circumstance or situation I'm going through, when I have a sense of grief and bereavement, and then I read that he is right there in the middle with me, then my anxious thoughts become less. Then my fears begin to disperse. Then I am reassured by His grace. Then I pick myself up and I persevere knowing He'll never leave me. It's in the pages of His Word that I find Him speaking to me, bringing affirmation and confirmation. Do you remember that well-known passage from Luke chapter 24? The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's the Easter Sunday afternoon. Things have not gone well for the disciples. They are leaving Jerusalem, heading home to Emmaus. Jesus walks alongside them. And what do we discover as he engages them in conversation? We read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the Scriptures concerning Himself. Grasp the enormity of that, please. At the point of their greatest need, when their closest best friend had been arrested, beaten, tried, crucified, and they were grieving over the horror of all that had taken place, He comes alongside them and opens the Scriptures to them. Why doesn't he simply go to them, throws arms around them, gives them a hug and says, I'm back. Remember I told you I would be back? He doesn't do that. Or at least he doesn't do that initially. That comes later. But initially he needed them to understand the will and purposes of God. That's what's going on. So on Sunday morning, when we open up the Scriptures and we study them together and we meditate and reflect on them and we look at them, we are saying we want to hear the voice of God. What is He saying into my life at this moment? And you remember several years ago, I gave you four questions to ask whenever you come to a passage of Scripture. And I have found these immensely helpful over the years. And the first question is, what does the passage actually say? Number one, not what do I think it says. Not what have I been led to believe, but what does the passage actually say? Number two, what does the passage say about God? The temptation at number two is to ask, what does the passage say about my life? That's not the second question. What does the passage say? What does the passage say about God? His love, His patience, His grace, His immense mercy and His goodness, His forgiveness, His ability to fill us with His power. Number three, then, what does the passage say about me? Number four, is there something I must do? The top three happen Sunday morning. For the rest of the week, you have number four. Is there something I must do? Is there a pattern of behavior in my life that needs to change? 
Is there a thought process and habits that I need to break? How do I grow in my faith? How do I understand His will? Those are the questions that run through our mind. And notice again what he says. And I'm praying that I'm asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through what? Spiritual wisdom and understanding. Where does spiritual wisdom and understanding come from? The pages of His Word. Remember Paul saying... Share this letter with the church at Laodicea. They will share their letter with you. Paul understood he was writing Holy Scripture. He wanted to speak into, by the Spirit of God, the lives of the church in Colossae and Laodicea, likewise for us. And then he adds, And we pray this in order that you may what? Contemplate, reflect, meditate? No. He's already said that. He says that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. What does that mean? It means this, that when we spend time in the Scriptures, not only will you sense His call, not only will He stimulate you, not only will He energize you, but He will enable and equip you to live out your faith day by day. That's exactly what the Colossians were doing. And Paul is saying, we have not stopped praying for you. We've heard incredible things about you. Thank you. And now you may be able to say, or are at least thinking of saying, Richard, okay, again, I hear what you're saying, but let me interrupt you again. Thank you for answering the question. What do I do when I don't feel like praying? But Richard, here's my other question this morning, and it's this. Richard, I have tried to live out my faith, and it has not worked well. So much so that, quite honestly, there have been times when I've wanted to give up. I have prayed and prayed and prayed. Things are not going well. I've tried to be obedient in my moral life and my spiritual life. And sometimes it works well. Other times it just doesn't. And there are areas in my life that quite honestly, Richard, if you and I were talking and I was to confess to you what's going on, I would be ashamed, embarrassed. There's hidden areas in my life that Gosh, I don't want anyone to see. And I've tried to conquer them. I've tried to get victory over them. And I've been unable to do it. Well, notice what's coming next. Where he says, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding in verse 10, we pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And we say, yes, of course, we want to do that. And notice what comes next. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Do you see it? God doesn't wind us up on Sunday morning and let us run throughout the week. He takes us by the hand and He grants us the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and He walks with us every moment of every day, granting to us patience and endurance. And when we think we can't do this in our own strength, we are absolutely right. We can only do it in His strength when we rely on Him and are dependent on Him. And where does that power come from? It comes from the indwelling nature of the Holy Spirit but folks, please hear this. It's 
only when you step out in faith and are willing to be obedient and are willing to live a life worthy of the Lord. And when you start to move forward, then he enables, then he empowers. He gives you power at the moment, not way back then, but when you need it the most. Let me try and wrap everything up this morning with a final thought. Power is there for us, being strengthened with all power, refreshed and renewed. Living the Christian life, and you've heard me use this analogy many times before, so please forgive me, but it is appropriate this morning. The Christian life is a little like going out for a day's hiking. And you come to lunchtime and you've been walking most of the morning and you have put in two or three hours on the hike and you stop at a nice overpass where you can see the road that you have come up through. You can see what still lies ahead and you stop and pause and you take off your backpack and you take off your jacket and you sit down and you take off your boots because your feet are hot and tired, they've been walking all morning and you stretch out a little and oh how good that is and you go into your backpack for some sandwiches and some fruit and something to drink and a little chocolate for energy and as you begin to eat you're refreshed and it's the power of that rest and refreshment that enables you to see what's coming next likewise That's the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who will empower us, equip us, strengthen us and we get to the point when we understand through spiritual knowledge and wisdom and reading His Word how much He loves us and given His immense love for us we refuse to live a life that will hurt Him or betray Him or sin against Him and we say, Father, we can do it on our own empower us and then what? put back on our boots and our jacket we pack our backpack we put it on and we persevere and we keep going why? because it's not just Paul who says I have been praying for you it's the Holy Spirit himself in Romans chapter 8 says this when you don't know what to pray for, when you feel like giving up, when you have been wounded and you're uncertain about the future, I am praying for you. Keep going. Persevere. What a prayer that is for the church in Colossae. What a prayer it is for us. And my prayer for us this week is that will be our experience. As we what? Grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Make him central in our thinking. Central in our feeling. Central in our planning. And we persevere, not in our own power, but in his. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of scripture this morning. Thank you that once again it speaks into our lives Help us please this week to return to this passage. Live in its pages as you empower us and grant to us patience and perseverance 
as we seek to grow in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.